WNYC is teaming up with NPR to bring you a new daily podcast, Consider This. We'll bring you the biggest news stories and what's happening in our community to help you make sense of the day. Subscribe to Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear UFO in Kushiro by Haruki Murakami, translated from the Japanese by Jay Rubin, which was published in The New Yorker in March of 2001. Each article contains some new tragedy, but to Komoro, those tragedies registered as oddly lacking in depth. The aftermath of the earthquake was like a distant, monotonous echo to him. The only thing he could give any serious thought to was his wife's drawing ever further away. The story was chosen by Brian Washington, whose debut story collection, Lot, was published last year, and whose first novel, Memorial, will come out in October. Hi, Brian. Hey, Deborah. How are you? I'm all right. Doing okay. Um... So we're here to talk about Murakami, and I get the sense that he's been important to you as a writer. Why is that? I think that it's a question of timing on my end. I didn't really grow up as voracious of a reader as a lot of my peers, and I think that the authors and creators that I had first contact with in depth have an outsized influence on how I view form and structure. But I came across Haruki Murakami, and the first work that I read from him was Kafka on the Shore. And I just remember feeling as if I were reading something that I just hadn't been not only privy to, but just like a sort of reality that I hadn't imagined even. It was a very visceral, very surreal experience reading him for the first time. What stage of your life were you at then? Were you in college or...? I was. I was in my second year of college then, and I hadn't had too much exposure to quote-unquote literary fiction at that point. So as far as an introduction, it was a pretty serious one, so to speak. (laughs) (laughs) What was it about, about his writing and about his style that was so novel for you? I think that the mixture of accessibility and the depth of the narrative was something that was really striking to me right the way in which it was working on two three four five six different levels without leaning too heavily on a lexicon like i could clearly understand the vernacular um across the page whilst attempting to navigate like three and four layers of story, which is just something that was really fascinating to me, but also something that impressed itself pretty deeply on me. Yeah. there's The words are very simple, but there's always things happening under them and over them and around them <laughs> that are harder to get to. So Right, right. And like another thing that was just super interesting to me is the way in which the reader's hand wasn't held, or rather my hand as a reader wasn't held, right? Like the details were there and the context was there and it was left to me to put it together and make it make sense in a way that made the rest of the story made sense. And that reliance upon the reader in the the storytelling process, like thinking of it as like an active process between storyteller and reader is something that was just super fascinating to me. So Japan has also played a role in, in your life and is an element in your new novel, 
What, what is the connection for you to that place? The first time that I went was just as a sort of vacation because it was something that I'd always wanted to do and the opportunity just sort of appeared in, in a way that I never expected it to. And then I made friends over there. So as opportunities continued to arise for work or for pleasure, I just took the chance to go. Just the, the notion of traveling in general, had always seemed very out of reach. So once it became less out of reach, it was something that I leaned into. For the novel specifically, I think that what I was really interested in parsing for that was the sort of quiet moments that can permeate a relationship with a partner, with a parent or a sibling and so on. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes when we're trying to define those relationships, they're characterized by the capital letter moments, so to speak, right? The ones with the fireworks, but (laughs) very few relationships are capital letter moment after capital letter moment. You know, it's like the quiet um, moments in which, you know, you're able to create a life with someone. So I think that the question for me with the novel was what would a narrative featuring the communities um, that I care about, uh, communities of color, marginalized folks, uh, queer communities of color, um, that was mostly made up of those quiet moments. Like what would that look like and how could I imbue that with humor and, and warmth without at the same time sacrificing the sadness that can sometimes permeate them as well. And I think that the decision to have a good chunk of it in Osaka as well as Houston was one that came pretty naturally because it's just this place that I've spent a good deal of time in where I felt very welcomed by friends and, and by the community over there. Mm-hmm. And this story, UFO and Kushiro, also involves, in a sense, well, the falling apart of a relationship that hasn't had enough capital letter moments. Um, what about this story is special for you? What made you want to, to read it today? When I originally chose it, we weren't on lockdown. So that in itself has been a surreal experience, right? The first time that I read after the quake was a few years ago. And I've since returned to that collection, which the story is from, every couple of months since then. And I think that the way that Murakami approaches a cataclysmic event without harping or suppose centering on the event itself so much as the reverberation surrounding it was one that was really interesting, right? Because, you know, any event affects folks in a multiplicity of ways, right? Like you and I are experiencing this quarantine together, but you and I have vastly different experiences of that quarantine, right? So any text that was able to approach that was just like immediately interesting to me. But UFO and Kushiro specifically, I think that it's such a quiet story. And yet there is extraordinary tragedy just outside of it. And the potential for extraordinary violence on the inside of it, the volleying between the two without leaning too heavily on either one of them is something that I just can't figure out, you know, and I think that that unknowability for me on my end is part of what makes it so interesting. We should probably specify that uh, this story and all of the stories in the collection after the quake are set right after the earthquake in Kobe in 1995. But I also like you find it especially interesting to read them in light of where we are right now in, in 2020. Yeah, which is, you know, which is, which is entirely beyond. But I think that it's also, 
fascinating to read in light of the question that I've seen floating amongst peers and friends of like, how do we write about ourselves, the world, and the sort of uh, reevaluation of physical space in light of quarantine, in light of COVID, in light of the structural shifts that we are all facing, right, implicitly or explicitly. And I think that this story and that collection at large is one response to it, like one route to approach. I think that that makes it worth exploring and re-exploring to me. Absolutely. And now here's Brian Washington reading UFO in Kushiro by Haruki Murakami, translated from the Japanese by Jay Rubin. UFO in Kushiro. Five straight days she spent in front of the television staring at crumbled banks and hospitals, whole blocks of stores in flames, severed rail lines and expressways. She never said a word. Sunk deep in the cushions of the sofa, her mouth clamped shut. She wouldn't answer when Komoda spoke to her. She wouldn't shake her head or nod. Komoda could not be sure that the sound of his voice was even getting through to her. Komoda's wife came from way up north in Yamagata, and, as far as he knew, she had no friends or relatives who could have been hurt in Kobe. Yet she stayed planted in front of the television from morning to night. When he got up, Komodo would make his own toast and coffee and head off to work. When he came home in the evening, he'd fix himself a snack with whatever he found in the refrigerator and eat it by himself. She'd still be glaring at the late news when he dropped off to sleep. In his presence, at least, she ate nothing and drank nothing and never went to the toilet. A stone wall of silence surrounded her. Komoda gave up trying to break through. And when he came home from work on Sunday, the sixth day, his wife had disappeared. Komoda was a salesman at one of the oldest audio equipment stores in Tokyo's Akihabara Electronics Town. He handled high-end stuff and earned a sizable commission whenever he made a sale. Most of his clients were doctors, wealthy independent businessmen, and rich provincials. He had been doing this for eight years and had earned a decent income right from the start. The economy was healthy, real estate prices were rising, and Japan was overflowing with money. Wallets were bursting with 10,000 yen bills, and everyone was dying to spend them. The most expensive items were often the first to sell out. Komodo was tall and slim and a stylish dresser. He was good with people. In his bachelor days, he had dated a lot of women. But after getting married, at 26, he found that his desire for sexual adventures simply and mysteriously vanished. He hadn't slept with any woman but his wife during the five years of their marriage. Not that the opportunity had never presented itself, but he had lost all interest in fleeting affairs and one-night stands. He much preferred to come home early, have a relaxed meal with his wife, Talk with her a while on the sofa, then go to bed and make love. This was everything he wanted. Komoda's friends were puzzled by his marriage. Next to his clean, classic looks, his wife could not have seemed more ordinary. She was short, with thick arms, and she had a dull, even stolid appearance. And it wasn't just physical. There was nothing attractive about her personality either. She rarely spoke, and her expression was often sullen. Still. Though he himself did not quite understand why, Komodo always felt his tension dissipate when he and his wife were together under one roof. 
It was the only time he could truly relax. He slept well with her, undisturbed by the strange dreams that had troubled him in the past. His erections were hard, his sex life was warm. He no longer had to worry about death or venereal disease or the vastness of the universe. His wife, on the other hand, disliked Tokyo's crowded, urban lifestyle and longed for Yamagata. She missed her parents and her two older sisters, and she would go home to see them whenever she felt the need. Her parents operated a successful inn, which kept them financially comfortable. Her father was crazy about his youngest daughter and happily paid her round-trip fares. Several times, Komodo had come home from work to find his wife gone, and a note on the kitchen table telling him that she would be visiting her parents for a while. He never objected. He just waited for her to come back, and she always did, after a week or ten days, in a good mood. But the letter his wife had left for him five days after the earthquake was different. I am never coming back, she had written, and gone on to explain simply but clearly why she no longer wanted to live with Komodo. The problem is that you never give me anything, she wrote. Or, to put it more precisely, you have nothing inside you that you can give me. You are good and kind and handsome, but living with you is like living with a chunk of air. It's not your fault. There are lots of women who will fall in love with you. But please don't call me. Just get rid of the stuff I'm leaving behind. Not that she had left much of anything behind. Her clothes, her shoes, her umbrella, her coffee mug, her hair dryer, all were gone. She must have packed them in boxes and shipped them out after he left for work that morning. The only things still in the house that could be called her stuff were the bicycle she had used for shopping and a few books. The Beatles and Bill Evans CDs that Komoda had been collecting since his bachelor days had also vanished. The next day, he tried calling his wife's parents' house in Yamagata. His mother-in-law answered the phone and told him that his wife didn't want to talk to him. She sounded somewhat apologetic. She also told him that his wife would be sending him the necessary divorce form soon, and that he should sign them and send them back right away. Komodo answered that he might not be able to send them back right away. This was an important matter, and he wanted time to think it over. You can think it over all you want, but I don't think that'll change anything, his mother-in-law said. She was probably right, Komodo thought. No matter how long he waited, things would never be the same. He was sure of that. Shortly after he sent the papers back, Komoda asked for a week off from work. February was a slow month, and he had already told his boss what was going on in his life. He had no trouble getting permission. A colleague of Komoda's named Sasaki came over to him at lunch and said, I hear you're taking time off. Are you planning to do something? I don't know, Komoda said. What should I do? Sasaki was a bachelor, three years younger than Komoda. He had a delicate build and short hair, and he wore round, gold-rimmed glasses. He talked too much and had a certain overconfident air about him, which a lot of people disliked, but he got along well enough with the easygoing Komoda. What the hell? As long as you're taking the time off, why not travel somewhere nice? Not a bad idea, Komoda said. 
Wiping his glasses with his handkerchief, Sasaki peered at Komodo as if examining him for some kind of clue. Have you ever been to Hokkaido? He asked. Never, Komodo said. Would you like to go? Why do you ask? Sasaki narrowed his eyes and cleared his throat. To tell the truth, I've got a small package I'd like to send to Kushiro, and I'm hoping you'll take it there for me. You'd be doing me a big favor, and I'd be glad to pay for the ticket. I could cover your hotel in Kushiro, too. A small package? Like this, Sasaki said, shaping a four-inch cube with his hands. Nothing heavy. Something to do with work? Sasaki shook his head. Not at all, he said. Strictly personal. I just don't want it to get knocked around, which is why I can't mail it. I'd like you to deliver it by hand, if possible. I really ought to do it myself, but I haven't had the time to fly all the way to Hokkaido. Is it something important? His closed lips curling slightly, Sasaki nodded. It's nothing fragile, and there are no hazardous materials. There's no need to worry about it. They're not going to stop you when they x-ray it at the airport. I promise I'm not going to get you in trouble. The only reason I'm not mailing it is I just don't feel like mailing it. Hokkaido in February would be freezing cold, Komodo knew. But cold or hot, it was all the same to him. So who do I give the package to? My sister, my younger sister. She lives up there. Komodo decided to accept Sasaki's offer. Thinking it over would have been too much trouble. He had no reason to refuse and nothing else to do. Sasaki called the airline immediately and reserved a ticket for two days later. At work the next day, he handed Komodo a box like the ones used for human ashes, only smaller, wrapped in manila paper. Judging from the feel, it was made of wood. It weighed almost nothing. Broad strips of transparent tape were wrapped around the package, over the paper. Komodo held it in his hands and studied it for a few seconds. He gave it a little shake, but he couldn't feel or hear anything moving inside. My sister will pick you up at the airport, Sasaki said. She'll be arranging a room for you. All you have to do is meet her at the gate. Komodo left home with a box and a suitcase wrapped in a thick shirt. The plane was far more crowded than he had imagined it would be. Why were all these people going from Tokyo to Kushiro in the middle of winter, he wondered. The morning paper was full of earthquake reports. He read it from beginning to end on the plane. The number of dead was rising. Many areas were still without water and electricity, and countless people had lost their homes. Each article contained some new tragedy, but to Komodo, those tragedies registered as oddly lacking in depth. The aftermath of the earthquake was like a distant, monotonous echo to him. The only thing he could give any serious thought to was his wife's drawing ever further away. When he grew tired of thinking about his wife and of following the lines of type, he closed his eyes and napped. When he woke, he thought about his wife again. Why had she followed the earthquake reports with such intensity, from morning to night, without eating or sleeping? What had she seen that he didn't see?
Two young women wearing overcoats of similar design and color approached Kermoda at the airport. One was fair-skinned and maybe five feet six, with short hair. The area from her nose to her full upper lip was oddly extended, in a way that made Komoda think of short-haired hoofed animals. The other woman was closer to five feet one and would have been quite pretty if her nose hadn't been so small. Her long hair fell straight to her shoulders. Her ears were exposed, and there were two moles on her right earlobe which were emphasized by the earrings she wore. Both women looked to be in their mid-twenties. They took Komoda to a cafe in the airport. I'm Keiko Sasaki, the taller woman said. My brother told me how helpful you've been to him. This is my friend, Shimao. Nice to meet you, Komoda said. Hi, Shimao said. My brother tells me that your wife recently passed away, Keiko Sasaki said, with a respectful expression. Komoda waited a moment before answering. No, she didn't die. I just talked to my brother the day before yesterday. I'm sure he said quite clearly that you had lost your wife. I did. She left me. But, as far as I know, she's alive and well. That's strange. I couldn't possibly have misheard something so important. She gave him an injured look. Komoda put a small amount of sugar in his coffee and stirred it gently before taking a sip. The liquid was thin, with no taste to speak of. What the hell am I doing here? He wondered. Well, I guess I did mishear it. I can't imagine how else to explain the mistake, Keiko Sasaki said, apparently satisfied now. She drew in a deep breath and bit her lower lip. Please forgive me. I was very rude. Don't worry about it. Either way, she's gone. Shimao said nothing while Komodo and Keiko spoke, but she smiled and kept her eyes on Komodo. She seemed to like him. He could tell from her expression and her subtle body language. A short silence fell over the three of them. Anyway, let me give you the important package I brought, Komodo said. He unzipped his suitcase and pulled the box out of the folds of the thick shirt he had wrapped it in. Keiko stretched her hands across the table, her expressionless eyes fixed on the package. After testing its weight, she did the same thing Komoda had and gave it a few shakes by her ear. She flashed a smile, as if to signal that everything was fine, and slipped the box into her oversized shoulder bag. I have to make a call, she said. Do you mind if I excuse myself for a moment? Not at all, Komoda said. Feel free. Keiko slung the bag over her shoulder and walked off toward a distant phone booth. Komoda studied the way she walked. The upper half of her body was still, while everything from the hips down made large, smooth, mechanical movements. He had the impression that he was witnessing some moment from the past, shoved with random suddenness into the present. Have you been to Hokkaido before? Shimao asked. Komoda shook his head. Yeah, I know. It's a long way to come. Komoda nodded. Then he turned to survey his surroundings. Strange, though, he said. Sitting here like this, it doesn't feel as if I've come all that far. Because you flew. Those planes are too damn fast. Your mind can't keep up with your body. You may be right. Did you want to make such a long trip? I guess so, Komoda said. 
because your wife left? Komodo nodded. No matter how far you travel, you can never get away from yourself, Shimao said. Komodo was staring at the sugar bowl on the table as she spoke, but then he raised his eyes to hers. It's true, he said. No matter how far you travel, you can never get away from yourself. It's like your shadow. It follows you everywhere. Shimao looked hard at Komodo. I bet you loved her, didn't you? Komodo dodged the question. You're a friend of Keiko Sasaki's? All right, we do stuff together. What kind of stuff? Instead of answering him, Shimao asked, Are you hungry? I don't know, Komodo said. I feel kind of hungry and kind of not. Let's go and have something warm, the three of us. Eating something warm will help you relax. Shimao drove a small, four-wheel drive Subaru. Keiko Sasaki sat next to Shimao, and Komodo had a cramped rear seat to himself. There was nothing particularly wrong with Shimao's driving, but the noise in the back was terrible, and the suspension was nearly shot. The car had to have more than 100,000 miles on it. The automatic transmission slammed into gear whenever it downshifted, and the heater blew hot and cold. Shutting his eyes, Komodo imagined that he had been imprisoned in a washing machine. No snow had been allowed to accumulate on the streets in Koshiro, but dirty, icy mounds stood at random intervals on both sides of the road. Dense clouds hung low, and, although it was not yet sunset, everything was dark and desolate. The wind tore through the city in sharp squeals. There were no people out walking. Even the traffic lights looked frozen. This is one part of Hokkaido that doesn't get much snow, Keiko explained in a loud voice, looking back at Komodo. We're on the coast, and the wind is strong, so whatever piles up gets blown away. It's cold, though. Freezing cold. Sometimes it feels like it's taking your ears off. You hear about drunks who freeze to death sleeping on the road, Shimao said. You get bears around here? Komodo asked. Keiko giggled and turned to Shimao. Bears! Shimao gave the same kind of giggle. I don't know much about Hokkaido, Komodo said by way of excuse. I know a good story about bears, Keiko said. Right, Shimao? A great story, Shimao said. But their talk broke off at that point, and neither of them told the bear story. Komodo didn't ask to hear it. Soon they reached their destination, a big noodle shop on the highway. They parked in the lot and went inside. Komodo had a beer and a hot bowl of ramen noodles. The place was dirty and empty, and the chairs and tables were rickety, but the ramen was terrific. And when he had finished eating, Komodo did, in fact, feel more relaxed. Tell me, Mr. Komodo, Keiko said. Do you have something you want to do in Hokkaido? My brother says you're going to spend a week here. Komodo thought about it for a moment, but couldn't come up with anything that he wanted to do. How about a hot spring? I know a little country place not far from here. Not a bad idea, Komodo said. I'm sure you'd like it. It's really nice. No bears or anything. The two women looked at each other and laughed again. Do you mind if I ask about your wife? Keiko asked. I don't mind. When did she leave? 
Mm, five days after the earthquake, so that's more than two weeks ago now. Did it have something to do with the earthquake? Komodo shook his head. Probably not. I don't think so. Still, I wonder if things like that aren't connected somehow, Shamal said with a tilt of her head. Yeah, Keiko said. It's just that you can't see how. Right, Shamal said. Stuff like that happens all the time. Stuff like what? Komodo asked. Like, say, what happened with somebody I know? Keiko said. You mean Mr. Sayaki? Shimao asked. Exactly, Keiko said. There's this guy, Sayaki. He lives in Koshiro. He's about 40 years old, a hairstylist. His wife saw a UFO last year. She was driving on the edge of town all by herself in the middle of the night, and she saw a huge UFO land in a field. Whoosh. Like in Close Encounters. A week later, she left home. Just disappeared and never came back. They weren't having any domestic problems or anything. And it was because of the UFO? Komoda asked. I don't know why, she just up and left. No note or anything. She had two kids in elementary school and she just walked out. Not a word from her since, Keiko said. The whole week before she left, all she'd do was tell people about the UFO. Couldn't get her to stop. She'd just go on and on about how big and beautiful it was. She paused to let the story sink in. My wife left a note, Komoda said. We don't have any kids. So your situation's a little better than Sayaki's, Keiko said. Yeah, kids make a big difference, Shamal said, nodding. Shamal's father left home when she was seven, Keiko explained with a frown. Ran off with his wife's younger sister. A silence settled over the group. Maybe Mr. Saiki's wife didn't run away, but was captured by an alien from the UFO? Komoda said to change the subject. It's possible, Shimao said with a somber expression. You hear stories like that all the time. You mean like you're walking along the street and a bear eats you kind of thing? Keiko asked. The two women laughed. The three of them left the noodle shop and went to a nearby love hotel. It was on the edge of town, on a strange street where love hotels alternated with gravestone dealers. The hotel Shimao had chosen was an odd building, constructed to look like a European castle. A triangular red flag flew on its highest tower. Keiko got the key at the front desk, and they took the elevator to the room. The windows were tiny, compared with the absurdly big bed. Komuro hung his down jacket on a hanger and went to the toilet. During the few minutes that he was gone, the two women managed to run a bath, dim the lights, turn up the heat, turn on the television, examine the delivery menus from local restaurants, test the light switches at the head of the bed, and check the contents of the minibar. The owners are friends of mine, Keiko said. I had them get a big room ready. It's a love hotel, but don't let that bother you. You're not bothered, are you? Not at all, Komodo said. I thought this would make a little more sense than sticking you in a cramped little room in some cut-rate business hotel by the station. I'm sure you're right, Komodo said. Why don't you take a bath? I filled the tub. Komodo did as he was told. The tub was huge. Komodo felt almost uneasy soaking in it alone. 
The couples who came to this hotel probably took baths together. When he emerged from the bathroom, Komodo was surprised to see that Keiko Sasaki had left. Shimao was still there, drinking beer and watching TV. Keiko went home, Shimao said. She wanted me to apologize and tell you that she'll be back tomorrow morning. Do you mind if I stay here a little while and have a beer? No, Komodo said. You sure it's no problem? Like, you want to be alone or you can't relax if somebody else is around or something? Komodo insisted that it was no problem. Drinking his beer and drying his hair with a towel, he watched TV with Shamal. It was a news special on the Kobe earthquake. The same images appeared again and again. Tilted buildings, buckled streets, tearful old women, confusion, and aimless anger. When a commercial came on, Shamal used the remote to switch off the TV. Let's talk, she said. As long as we're here. Fine, Komodo said. What should we talk about? In the car, you and Keiko said something about a bear, remember? You said it was a great story. Oh, yeah, she said, nodding. The bear story. You want to tell it to me? Sure, why not? Shimao got a fresh beer from the refrigerator and filled both their glasses. It's a little raunchy, she said. You don't mind? Komodo shook his head. No, go ahead. I mean, some men don't like hearing a woman tell certain kinds of stories. I'm not like that. It's something that actually happened to me, so it's a little embarrassing. I'd like to hear it if you're okay with it. I'm okay. Shimao said, if you're okay. I'm okay, Komodo said. Three years ago, back around the time I started college, I was dating this guy. He was a year older than me, and he was the first guy I had sex with. One day, the two of us were out hiking in the mountains way up north. Shimao took a sip of beer. It was fall, and the hills were full of bears. That's the time of year when the bears are getting ready to hibernate. So they're out looking for food and they're really dangerous. Sometimes they attack people. They'd done an awful job on a hiker three days before we went out. So somebody gave us a bell to carry with us. We were supposed to shake it while we walked to warn the bears that there were people around. Bears don't attack people on purpose. I mean, they're pretty much vegetarians. They don't have to attack people. What happens is they suddenly bump into people in their territory and they get surprised or angry and they attack out of reflex. If you walk along ringing your bell, they'll avoid you. Get it? I get it. So that's what we were doing, walking along and ringing the bell. We got to this place where there was nobody else around and all of a sudden he said he wanted to do it. I kind of liked the idea too, so I said, okay, we went to this bushy place off the trail where nobody could see us, and we spread out a piece of plastic. But I was afraid of the bears. I mean, think how awful it would be to have some bear attack you from behind and kill you while you're having sex. I would never want to die that way. Would you? Komodo agreed that he would not want to die that way. So there we were, shaking the bell with one hand and having sex. Kept it up from start to finish. Ding-a-ling, ding-a-ling. Which one of you shook the bell? We took turns. We'd trade off when our hands got tired. 
it was so weird shaking this bell the whole time while we were doing it. I think about it sometimes even now when I'm having sex and I start laughing. Komoda gave a little laugh too. Shimao clapped her hands. Oh, that's wonderful, she said. You can laugh after all. Of course I can laugh, Komoda said, but come to think of it, this was the first time he had laughed in quite a while. When was the last time? Do you mind if I take a bath too? Shimao asked. Oh, Komoda said. While she was bathing, Komoda watched a variety show emceed by a comedian with a loud voice. He didn't find it the least bit funny, but he couldn't tell whether that was the show's fault or his own. He drank a beer and opened a packet of nuts from the minibar. Shimao stayed in the bath for a very long time. Finally, she came out wearing nothing but a towel and sat on the edge of the bed. Dropping the towel, she slid between the sheets like a cat and lay there staring at Komoda. When was the last time you did it with your wife? She asked. At the end of December, I think. And nothing since? Nothing. Not with anybody? Komodo closed his eyes and nodded. You know what I think? Shimao said. You need to lighten up and learn to enjoy life a little more. I mean, think about it. Tomorrow there could be an earthquake. You could be kidnapped by aliens. You could be eaten by a bear. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Nobody knows what's going to happen, Komodo echoed. Dingling, Shimao said. After several failed attempts to have sex with Shimao, Komodo gave up. This had never happened to him before. You must have been thinking about your wife, Shimao said. Yep. Komoda said, but in fact, what he'd been thinking about was the earthquake. Images of it had come to him one after another, as if in a slideshow, flashing on the screen and fading away. Highways, flames, smoke, piles of rubble. He couldn't break the chain of silent images. Shimao pressed her ear against his naked chest. These things happen, she said. Uh-huh. You shouldn't let it bother you. I'll try not to, Komoda said. Men always let it bother them, though. Komoda said nothing. Shimao played with his nipple. You said your wife left a note, didn't you? I did. What did it say? That living with me was like living with a chunk of air. A chunk of air? Shimao tilted her head back to look at Komoda. What does that mean? But there's nothing inside me, I guess. Is it true? Could be, Komoda said. I'm not sure, though. I may have nothing inside me, but what would something be? Yeah, really, come to think of it, what would something be? My mother was crazy about salmon skin. She always used to wish that there were a kind of salmon that was made of nothing but skin. So there may be some cases when it's better to have nothing inside, don't you think? Komoda tried to imagine what a salmon made of nothing but skin would be like. But even supposing there were such a thing, wouldn't the skin itself be the something inside? Komoda took a deep breath, raising and then lowering Shimao's head on his chest. 
I'll tell you this, though, Shamal said. I don't know whether you've got nothing or something inside you, but I think you're terrific. I'll bet the world is full of women who would understand you and fall in love with you. It said that, too. What, your wife's note? Uh-huh. No kidding, Shamal said, her earring rubbed against the skin of his chest. Come to think of it, Komodo said, what's the something inside that box I brought up here? Is that bothering you? It wasn't bothering me before, but now, I don't know, it's starting to. Since when? Just now. All of a sudden? Yeah, once I started thinking about it, all of a sudden. I wonder why it started bothering you now, all of a sudden. Komodo stared at the ceiling for a minute. I wonder. The two listened to the moaning of the wind. The wind came from someplace unknown to Komodo, and it blew past to another place unknown to him. I'll tell you why, Shimao said in a low voice. It's because that box contains the something that was inside you. You didn't know that when you carried it here and gave it to Keiko with your own hands. Now you'll never get it back. Komodo lifted himself from the mattress and looked down at the woman. Tiny nose, moles on her earlobe. In the room's silence, his heart beat with a loud, dry sound. His bones cracked as he leaned forward. For a split second, Komodo felt as if he were on the verge of committing an act of incredible violence. Just kidding, Shimao said when she saw the look on his face. Is that the first thing that popped into my head? It was a lousy joke, I'm sorry. Don't take it personally, I didn't mean to hurt you. Komodo forced himself to calm down and sank his head into his pillow again. He closed his eyes and took a deep breath. The huge bed stretched out around him like a nocturnal sea. His heart was still pounding. Are you starting to feel a little as if you've come a long way? Shimao asked. Hmm. Now, I feel as if I've come a very long way, Komodo answered honestly. Shimao traced a complicated design on Komodo's chest with her fingertip, as if casting a magic spell. But really? She said. You're just at the beginning. That was Brian Washington, reading UFO and Kushiro by Haruki Murakami, translated from the Japanese by Jay Rubin. The story appeared in The New Yorker in March of 2001 and was republished in the magazine in March of 2011 after the earthquake and tsunami that devastated northeastern Japan. It was included in Murakami's collection After the Quake, which was published in English in 2002. If you've been having a hard time customizing your workout to fit your new lifestyle these days, you are not alone. This New Yorker podcast is supported by Bulldog Online Yoga, the streaming platform that makes working out both fun and convenient. Build strength, relieve stress, and get your stretch on with easy-to-use apps for your computer, phone, and smart TV. With classes that range from 10 to 60 minutes, Bulldog sets all online yoga classes to custom Spotify playlists that'll have you smiling while you sweat it out. Head over to bulldogonline.com today and get 30 days free. That's bulldogonline.com to stream your first 30 days completely free. The New Yorker Festival is back, and it's our 21st year. Undeterred by COVID, we're coming to you virtually with a fantastic lineup, and you can enjoy it all without even putting on your shoes. 
Chris Rock is joining us, Jerry Seinfeld and Steve Martin too, and a performance and conversation with Fiona Apple. There's also Elizabeth Warren and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Eric Holder, and many more. You can find out everything that's happening and buy tickets at newyorker.com slash festival. Again, that's newyorker.com slash festival. See you there. So, Brian, to start at the beginning of the story, this couple has a puzzling relationship from the get-go. You know, he's this classically attractive, outgoing, likable guy. She's unattractive. She's sullen. She doesn't talk. And yet, Komura feels at peace when he's with her. The tension goes out of him. He has no more bad dreams. He doesn't worry about death. How do you account for that connection, for him at least? It's something that I'm still trying to figure out. I do think that that motif of relationship that isn't perhaps a classical match, so to speak, where the attractiveness of both parties is parallel to one another, the financial or job status of both parties isn't parallel to one another, and yet one is able to give the other something that they can't find anywhere else is one that's always going to be interesting to extrapolate. And in this particular instance, I think that the thing that Komoda can't find anywhere else, peace, is such a commodity that it would be enough for him to stay in that relationship. Because the moment that his wife does leave him and that peace evaporates, everything seems to go to shit, you know? And his taking this journey is like an attempt to sort of find that piece, right? Or to search for that thing that he's lost. Yeah, the exchange between the two of them where she feels she's getting nothing and where he feels he's getting everything, the meaning of life is a bizarre one because it's not necessarily interactive. Right, it feels as if the contentment of Komodo was parasitic in a sense, right? Because what is he giving her. It's very interesting to me how the narrative is centered entirely on his loss. Um, Like oftentimes, every time that I read this narrative, I am left wondering what loss looked like on her end, right? Like he loses peace and what does she lose and what does that look like? Right. I mean, it's possible she was getting nothing, so she's lost (laughs) nothing. Absolutely. In fact, what she got was his his Beatles and Bill Evans CDs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which are pretty you know pretty rare finds. So you know, there's, there's there's a reading where where she wins either way. You could feel uh, Murakami just really resenting that that she took those. <laughs> yeah, it does feel like a bit of a sting. <laughs> Do you think that she's known throughout the marriage that she was getting nothing, that she's you know living with a chunk of air, or did it take the disaster in Kobe for her to see that? And what was it about the disaster that made her see that? I think that the wife was aware that her relationship with Komodo wasn't entirely symbiotic and that she wasn't getting what he was getting out of it and that the earthquake underlined the discrepancy. It was enough for her to not only reevaluate what that relation meant to her, but it was enough for her to just take action and absolutely sever herself from it in the way that sometimes, you know, we may know things and it takes some sort of outside force, some sort of outside event for us to recontextualize it. Yeah. It's also interesting that, you know, she spends these five days looking at crumbled buildings and looking inside the lives of others in a sense, you know, that 
when an earthquake happens and you're looking at these houses that have fallen, you're, usually you're seeing inside them, you're seeing into other people's lives. And um, something about that perhaps triggered her. Yeah, because like, how do we make sense of our own relationships? Like, how do we make sense of ourselves? It's through the relationships and the folks around us, right? So perhaps her having this time to take stock and take sense of the debris around her gave her a deeper awareness of her own situation. Yeah. And unlike her, Kimura can't really appreciate the tragedy. And I feel a certain sympathy for that. You know, you can look at the U.S. and say there's more than 95,000 people who've died of COVID-19. There's no way to appreciate the individual tragedies of each death, right? And she seems to hold against him the fact that he's not doing that with the with the losses in Kobe. But who can? <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's the sheer scale of death of the earthquake in Kobe is just astronomical, right? Like, how do you, like, what context do you place it in, right? And the same goes for just the scale of suffering in the States alone as a result of COVID and the reverberation surrounding COVID, right? There's like this sort of collapse of context that the dissolution of Komodo's relationship reveals, right? Because his Mm -hmm. immediate vicinity is largely untouched by the earthquake. And yet it's in some ways responsible for the dissolution of the peace that he has. It, It makes you wonder, like, does he turn to the earthquake as a sense or as a way of getting that understanding of the situation back? Or does he immediately turn to his relationship? Yeah. And it's interesting because he goes back to thinking about the earthquake two more times in the story. One is on the plane to uh, Hokkaido where he's reading about it and still not taking it in. And and the final time is when he's in bed with Shimao. And at that point, suddenly it hits him in a sense. He's he's harrowed by the images that pass through his mind. And I wonder, what do you think has happened between those moments? I think that it's sunk in. He's gotten outside of himself over the course of the story, whether by way of distance, right? Whether that's time passing, whether that's being in a new place without having the sort of creature comforts, without having the the rhythms of, of habit to, to guide him along. I think that just the passing of time had its toll on him, and that's when the devastation in mass sort of reveals itself in the ways it affects him directly and also the ways that it doesn't affect him, right? And that's the moment when Shimao tells him, you know, really, like, you're just at the beginning. For the course of his story, he may have felt that the loss of this piece, the loss of this relationship was the end of his story, um, if not at least the end of an arc. And yet it's when he comes to have a sharper sense of what's been wrought that he finds himself, like, at the beginning, right? And it takes his interactions with these other folks in this new place for him to have that realization. And it's not a realization that he has, right? Like, as Shimao tells him, he doesn't have the language for it. She gives it to him, which I think yeah. is just super fascinating. And, and in a sense, he's just actually finally enacted the loss in his mind. Let's look at that final scene for a second, because jumping ahead, what we have is Shimao infuriating him by kind of joking about how he's just given himself away or has given his soul away and he's never getting it back. And 
his response is to feel the surge of overwhelming violent anger. And that for him is the beginning of something. But the beginning of what? <laughs> is it the beginning of, of self-realization? Is it the beginning of understanding other people outside of himself or perhaps his own contentment or his own peace? I think that that's super interesting about that moment. And, you know, the first time that I read that particular line where it feels as if he's on the edge of that overwhelming violence, like it just like haunted me for like a week. It's, it's the most visceral response that we see from him for the duration of the piece. It didn't surface as a result of his wife leaving him. It didn't surface as a result of his trying to gain a grasp of the earthquake and the resulting devastation. It was this very intimate moment between him and a stranger, for the most part, telling him something about himself. And that is what brings out just this deeply visceral response from him, right? Um, and that's when he's at the beginning, right? When he begins perhaps to have an awareness of himself outside of himself. It's his first moment of non-passivity. I mean, if you think about the rest of the story, his wife leaves, he stops trying to engage her. She tells him not to question her decision. He really doesn't. His mother-in-law tells him to sign the divorce papers. He signs them. His coworker tells him to go to Hokkaido, so he goes to Hokkaido. You know, Keiko runs a bath, so he takes a bath. Like everything he does, he's told to do. And that one moment is the only moment in the whole story that he's on the verge of doing something he hasn't been told to do. And it's a terrible thing. <laughs> you know, it's murderous violence that surges up in him. But on the other hand, we sort of applaud it. Or, or don't we? <laughs> well, I don't know if I applaud it. Yeah. I don't know if I co-sign that. Like, I, I, we applaud the emotion. We applaud the experience of feeling something for him. Right. It, it feels as if it's the first moment that he's engaged with the world. It is an active reaction that he's having. And the story is bereft of those active reactions from him until that moment i mean like as you said like he just kind of go he goes with the flow like wh whether to keep the peace or out of a sense of, of searching um but he you know he's just moving along with the whims of the world and it's this moment that nearly coerces action out of him right like murderous action vile action if it's if it's led to fruition but action nonetheless and that, that's the start for him like the the, the beginning that's of action the beginning. Yeah. So just to go to the elephant in the room, um, what's in the box? I, I don't know. I don't know. And I think that, I think that that's what I, just is like, it's like a, a technical trick, just like as a structural trick that is just so interesting to me, right? Like just to have an entity or an item and a narrative and to tell the reader that there is something in it and then to never, never, never really like explicitly <laughs> allude to what that is because that just forces the reader to be an active participant. And, and, you know, Murakami like doesn't really give an inch in that regard. Right. No. And he may not know. No, he himself may not know <laughs> is the thing, right? Like you, it could be a box with nothing in it. And, and then it's, uh, it's function structurally is just a, this device to force contemplation and action on, on the readers. End. And he's just like fucking laughing at us as we try to try to put something in a box. But there's, <laughs> I think that, uh, as a narrative device, it's just really sound. I mean, whatever it is, is deeply 
integral to everyone who seems to touch it as it moves from hand to hand, integral enough for it to be moved mm-hmm. in the midst of, you know, a devastating earthquake, like a national disaster. Like this box is significant enough to be moved across across the country and for Komoro to be the one uh, to move it. Yeah. And in a way, Kimura's movement is stage managed by Sasaki, by his co-worker, whom he doesn't seem to know very well, who maybe isn't even quite sure what's just happened since he tells Keiko that the wife has died. And why? <laughs> I, I, I know you can't answer this. Why do you think um, Sasaki or- orchestrates this for his co-worker? You know, I thought about this a lot, and I wonder if it's chance you know the role of chance and the role of happenstance resurfaces more than a few times in Murakami's work and the way in which a narrator's or character's proximity to chance and happenstance can absolutely reroute the trajectory of not only their life but their understandings about themselves um I wonder if it's chance I wonder if it's something that Sasaki sees in Komoda, right? Whether it's something that's seen as a result of his wife having left him, or whether perhaps he is that empty vessel that his wife uh, tells him that he is, and therefore a candidate to move this item across the country. Which is also possibly an empty vessel. Right, right. Perhaps they're uh, a match made for, for one another, and Sasaki identifies that. Yeah. And then when he gets to uh, Kushiro, he... Everything around him seems a little bit off. You know, he looks at Keiko. She's got this kind of weirdly shaped face that makes him think of a a hoofed animal. And when she walks, she makes these large mechanical movements with her bottom half. And he feels something from the past is happening in the present. Everything about her throws him off. And perhaps that's the intent. Perhaps her presence is simply in the story to unsettle him enough that he will reach the, the final end point. Or the beginning point? Um, what do you think? I think that his understanding and his introduction to someone that is so unlike him and perhaps so unlike his expectations of what a person can be is not at all unrelated to the sort of long journey that he alludes to at the end of the piece. It's not only the exchange of words that he has with Shimao that sort of conjures that beginning, but also his initial interactions with these new folks and these new space that forces him to take stock of the world. Um, Because it doesn't seem as if he's taken stock of it in the moments after his wife has left him, right? Like all these major events are happening, like back to back to back to back perhaps enough to give him vertigo, perhaps enough to shake up his general understanding of of what matters and what doesn't. And so these interactions in this new place could be read as the first steps that he's taken in order to find himself like as an active participant in the world. Yeah. And perhaps Kimura has to feel violence in himself in order to appreciate it when it happens outside of himself. Yeah, because it it is a, even without violence on the page, it's a deeply violent moment, right? Like the introduction of violence in and of itself is enough to absolutely shift the story 
So maybe the proximity to that violence or the place that violence has taken place, right? Like natural violence, violence upon people nonetheless is enough to fracture and perhaps reshape an understanding of what that place means to you. Yeah. And then in the middle of the story and in the title, we have a UFO. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a literal UFO. <laughs> you know, we things weren't. A, a literal UFO. Um, and I, I wonder why it's there. Um, I wonder if we're supposed to, you know, see Kimura as, or the, the box he carries as, as a kind of unidentified flying object, <laughs> you know, that flies from Tokyo to, to Kushiro. Oh, um, I wonder. Why yeah. do you think it's there? Why do you think it's in the title? That's also something that I've, I've been trying to parse. I mean, and the question that I come back to every time I think about it is whether or not a UFO is in any way as shocking or as unbelievable as the toll of the earthquake in Kobe, right? One of the deadliest and costliest natural events ever to strike that country, right? They're both in- incomprehensible. And having them in the same narrative forces the reader to evaluate what is shocking. I mean, like the first time that I read the story, when I came to the UFO, like I just read past it because it wasn't in any way as visceral as the earthquake and the devastation surrounding it to me. So I, I wonder, again, like the, the context collapse, like having all of these massive things in, in, in proximity to one another, like it forces the reader to reevaluate and question like, okay, which of these is truly beyond? Like which one of these uh, like, eclipses <laughs> my understanding? And in a sense, it's, yeah, it's a visitation. The, whether by aliens or by by natural disaster, it's something that changes the course. Um, and as with the earthquake, it changes the course for someone off stage. You know, someone we don't know, who's not a presence in the story because it's a story told about a woman who's we don't know even know who she is, whose life is changed by the UFO. But her life means nothing to us in the same way that strangers' lives in Kobe don't individually mean something. Yeah. And the stories, it's, I think in a lot of ways, like this story is like a a study on like what stories can do to you. Stories that are of a devastating event that perhaps doesn't affect your immediate situation and how this particular person is moving through the world and in which stories touch him, like which stories permeate him and which stories just sort of like roll, roll off his back. Yeah. I guess the the title gives us a a slight clue that we're supposed to pay attention to the UFO when it turns up. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's just a a tiny clue. (laughs) But it's funny. I I should mention there's a Murakami story coming out um, in the fiction issue, actually, the same day that this podcast comes out, and it involves a monkey. And for our Q&A, I asked him, you know, this monkey's been outcast from human society, has been outcast from monkey society. Is he a, a symbol of something? And, and Haruki says, well, you know, sometimes a monkey is just a monkey. Um, <laughs> I'm interested in the monkey. So sometimes a UFO is just a UFO. Yeah, sometimes, <laughs> yes. yeah, it's just a UFO. The box is just a box, right? And, and, and the story is, uh, you know, less about what's in the box than perhaps the conduit that's moving it the yeah the action it sets off yeah well thank you so much brian likewise thanks so much for having me 
Haruki Murakami has published more than a dozen novels in English, including The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle, 1Q84, and most recently, Killing Commendatore. A winner of the Franz Kafka Prize, the Jerusalem Prize, and the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award, among others, he's been publishing fiction in The New Yorker since 1990. Brian Washington's story collection, Lot, was published last year, and a novel, Memorial, comes out later this year. He's a winner of the National Book Foundation's 5 Under 35 Award, the Ernest J. Gaines Award, and the International Dylan Thomas Prize. You can download more than 150 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcast section of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.